don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, architectural theory and gender, the example of the suburban house with Stephanie Dadoo. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Stéphanie Dadour, she teaches in a French architecture school and uh, her research is, um, uh, is about uh, the, the discrepancy between theory and practice as well as, um, as, well as how gender can be uh, investigated through architecture and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, hello, Stephanie. Hi. Um, so um, today we will uh, we will talk about this uh, issue of gender, as you've been um, examining examining it in uh, in architecture in your in your PhD. Um, and so maybe to begin this conversation, we can have you explain a little bit to us because it's only a part of your PhD. So we we can maybe have you introduced a little bit. What your what this entire research uh, was about, if you don't mind? Yes, sure. Uh, my research was in the beginning about uh, housing in the in the United States, in North America, actually. But I started my uh, research in France, and while uh, researching, I discovered that very few projects of collective housing were published or um, I, could, I couldn't find them actually. So when I went to the States, I tried to meet as much as possible architects who were working on housing, but it was very problematic and most of the architects didn't want to talk about it. It was like a, a taboo subject in, in, a, in a sense because I was also working on contemporary projects, so post-1980s. Uh, Uh, therefore, I discovered a very rich uh, literature about housing in the States, especially in those years, in the, in the 80s. So it was very weird for me to discover all, so many books and, pub and publications about housing in the 80s and 90s, but nothing built, except uh, suburban housing for sure, but it was not really a subject to talk about with architects because they are very often out of the of this market. So therefore I discovered those publications and I was very interested in in understanding what they were about. Most of them were about the dichotomy between suburban housing and public space for example or about deconstructing this suburban house to understand what are the norms, what are the representations and the and all the political and social issues about it. And gender was one of the way, one of the category that allowed those scholars to uh, deconstruct the house. Uh, so my thesis changed, the subject of my thesis changed, and I was interested in the question of identity in housing. So to give you just a, a very large idea about my thesis, it's divided in, uh, main, in three parts, but mainly in two parts. One of them is about all those theor theoretical productions, whether they are projects or writings, projects uh, what we call paper architecture, so uh, very much in publications or exhibitions, 
but still a, a real uh, a real conception of the space um, and I was trying to see uh, all the categories of identities that architects were working on through the house and the second part is projects that were built from the 90s till the 2000s in order to see if those theories that were written in the 80s and 90s did have an impact 10 and 20 years later on the productions of architects. And my conclusion is that in the States there is a big gap between the scholar production and the professional practice. So this is what I tried to demonstrate in my thesis. Mm -hmm. And the gender issue is... Um, is very present and uh, uh, it's also extended to other um, what we call in, in the States other minorities like uh, sexuality, gender, uh, uh, also other because in, in the productions of projects the categories are different and they are more ethnic. Uh, they are related to what we call in, in English race. It's a word that we cannot use in French usually. So um, so in the production, architects will do a project, let's say, for Hispanic communities, for Afro-American communities, so that the, the concept also changes. And um, yes, so this is what I, I investigated. I'm mm. not sure if I'm clear. No, you definitely are. And uh, we, we, we will go back to this, um, to this particular object that the suburban house is and... Uh, in doing so, I'm 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 very excited to do so because it will continue um, a series of conversations that uh, already started with uh, Olivia Ann and uh, Karen Thompson uh, on Archipelago. So I think this is great to have uh, this sort of uh, continuity. Um, and uh, but before we do so, and as much for maybe a non-architectural audience of this podcast, but also maybe an architectural audience who's not necessarily familiar with this sort of the North American, but I mean, mostly East Coast-based uh, theoretical uh, debate um, from, from the late 80s and beginning of 90s. Could you maybe introduce us to this sort of historical context in which uh, this is happening, as well as obviously the... the, the the, the second wave of uh, feminism and the, the other political context, so, but uh, in a sort of very internal uh, internal approach to architecture so that we can externalize it later in, uh, in the fact that obviously uh, architecture concerns uh, everybody. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, so first of all, I just want to say that uh, feminism and architecture have a very long story, especially in the United States and uh, in the historiography of uh, the United States. Just to give you an idea, since the middle of the 19th century, there were some feminists, not necessarily architects by formation, but who were working on architecture uh, with architects, social plan, uh, urban planners, etc., to uh, have uh, some thinking about uh, especially the domestic space, since it's the, the place of the woman uh, in this time. What happens in the 1980s, in my way of examining this uh, architectural milieu, is that there is, uh, in the East Coast especially, uh, the he he hegemonic 
scene that was in the in the theoretical milieu of architecture especially taken but by uh, the debates between the whites and the greys that is to say Uh, the whites being the neo-modern uh, Peter Eisenman, uh, uh, Kenneth Frampton, all the IAUS uh, gang, uh, the boys club, uh, in the way Mary McLeod called them. And on the opposite side, we had all the postmodern. Uh, to give an idea for some people who are not necessarily in architecture, I think that Venturi is, uh, is, would be the... the the most popular one. He was not with the, the greys in the, in the beginning, but anyway, he, he worked with them. So uh, those debates were very similar, although they, they had some differences, but uh, a scholar like Nadia Watson really shows how finally those debates were hegemonic and were everywhere. I mean, in all the publications, not in... Not, not in the big public space of architecture, but in the intellectual milieu of architecture, they were taking all the place. And, uh, and they were men. I mean, the EIUS, the Institute of Architecture and Urban Studies that was created by, by uh, Peter Eisenman, was functioning by... Uh, women were, were scholars, were had fellowship, but I mean the main brains and the big positions were given uh, f to men. So what happens, you, you have this, then you have in, uh, in American campuses uh, all the critical and the French theory being important from Europe. I mean Derrida, later on Deleuze, etc. traveled to the States and were understood in a way that was different from the French way. So you have all those writings and thinking that come from Europe to um, to the states in on the on the American campuses, mainly in uh, social studies, in all the kind of studies, gender studies, uh, um, and all the thinking of uh, les Indianistes, the Indian uh, the Indian milieu like Spivak, uh, etc. So all of this happens at the same time. And at the EIUS, you have uh, a few women who decide to, uh, to do something, to do a magazine called Revisions, with uh, Alan Colon. Uh, it's a man, and he will have them. And so this magazine is published three times uh, by Joanne Oakman, Mary McLeod, and uh, Beatrice Colomina. And later on, it stops, but it gives a voice to these women, And it will allow them, in a way, to participate in another big uh, magazine that will be Assemblage. Okay, and Assemblage... Uh, I mean, yeah, now I'm, I'm maybe going too fast, but Assemblage is the continuity, in a way, in a different way, of Oppositions. Oppositions was the magazine put uh, by the... developed by the EIUS. So uh, at the time that Opposition stops, Assemblage is founded by Michael Hayes and two other women, Catherine Ingraham and Alicia Kennedy. And what is interesting is that those women are not from the architecture milieu. They are from uh, comparative uh, literature and history. So this is really the beginning of uh, other ways of thinking and other categories that are introduced in architecture. And Beatrice Colomina, Mary McLeod, Joan Oakman will also play a role in this magazine, Assemblage. 
So from there on, I think that uh, there is something that goes that is going on in the arch- architecture theoretical scholar milieu in the states. And from the 80s, mid-80s, you will start seeing a proliferation of publication and exhibitions about gender in architecture. Sexuality and Space being one of the first ones that was uh, um, edited by uh, Beatrice Colomina at the, the Princeton University. And after this, you will have really so many publications in less than 10 years that will uh, that will be pl- published on the topic of gender sexuality queer space etc um well so if if now we now that we have our our sort of uh, context in which uh in which um uh the the critical work has been uh, has been coming from uh with this um with this uh, raise of um of uh, feminist uh, feminist points of view on on what architecture um, uh, triggers in terms of in terms of gender, for example, and other and other uh, uh, normative categories, uh, we can we can maybe look at as I was saying earlier the, the the suburban house as a sort of paradigm of what architecture can tell us about this and um, and maybe to to again to to recall previous conversation, we we had Olivia Ann explaining to us uh, how um, the suburban house was a sort of a post-war instrument to reconstruct the f- the feminine gender after after the war uh, made it made it um, uh, changed and um, and uh, Karen Thompson explaining how. Um, how the suburban imaginary uh, uh, was usually interpreted through a, a very uh, a very white heterosexual uh, approach, but that um, and talking specifically about the inland empire in the in the big su- suburban areas of of Los Angeles, how how there was an entire queering of of space that was uh, that was operated uh, through. Uh, um, through various communities and queer communities of of uh, of uh, this this same suburbia. So now that this is now that this is said, we can we can look at uh, other aspects of uh, of this um, suburban house and and uh, through 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 the examples you've been giving in your in your research, I was uh, very interested in how you're you've been um, interested in. Um, in uh, elements of this, uh, like ar- ar- archite- architectural type types uh, of elements for in this house, so we we have the the lawn, we have the window. I mean, there's a, I mean the the lawn in particular is is a very interesting uh, a very interesting object in with with even a sort of uh, play on words that you will explain to us between the low and the lawn. Uh, and uh, how people like Joel Sanders or Beatrice Colomina are are actually addressing this um, this uh, particular element um, uh, both during the war and and after. Um, could you maybe can can we maybe start with the lawn? Like just like when we arrive in a suburban suburban house, that we start by 
we start by the loan. How is it? How, how is the loan a gender gendered space? Uh, yes, sure, we can talk about this, but I just want to underline one thing that I didn't say and that I think is very important, is that all those studies have been addressed uh, by all the scholars I called, but before those, this generation, Colomina, uh, uh, Mary McLeod, etc., I just want to say that Dolores Hayden and Gwendolyn Wright did start a social historical look at the suburban house and housing in general uh, with the... Um, a look or a filter of gender and uh, race categories. So this was also done in the in the 80s in the States and I think also by women historians, it's important to be said, and it was like the germs also of what will happen with the second generation of uh, the scholars I talked about. Mm. Yes, I think that the the question of the loan is uh, very important. A very nice exhibition was uh, showed at the Canadian Centre of Architecture, I think in the 90s, uh, in which Colomina participated, but also Georges Tissot. Uh, the catalogue is very, very interesting. Uh, so the loan is gender, uh, yes, for sure, and I think that you can see it very, very uh, clearly in... Um, uh, American series, series mm. like Desperate Housewives, etc. It is the 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 front loan of the house is that of the man. It's the loan where the man will go out of the house and he will uh, il va tondre la mon the loan. And it has always to be a very well represented loan because it represents what's happening inside the house. If the loan is not well well presented then something's wrong and you have to have the good machine to do it because it is like having a good car you know it's part of uh, of those machines that will uh, give us some information about your social status about your uh, whether you are succeeding in your life or not whether everything is functioning or not etc so it's that of the public it's an open loan what is interesting in the states in comparison to france for example is that most often it's not fenced. Yeah. Uh, everyone can go on this loan. But at the same time, no one goes. So you have nice flowers, you have the loan, maybe one tree. It's a public space that has a very symbolic use, but not a real uh, human use. Whether the one at the back of the house, which is the garden, is it's the um, private space of the house and it's uh, introverted it's not open to the public it's fenced by um, by a, a rigid fence or by trees and bushes and a vegetal uh, fence and it's that of the house it can be in order or not we don't know it so you know it's like the opposite of what's happening in the front part so in the suburban house, you, also, you, you always have the separation between public and private. And at all the scales of the house, you can see it, whether it's the exterior, the interior. The, uh, if you take it as an object, you can turn it. And at all the moment, you can see a dichotomy between public and private. And the lawn and the garden are, um, are the exterior spaces that really... Uh, materialize this aspect mm -hmm. and I, I think Karen Tungsen would, would also say and I'm, I'm really paraphrasing here but uh, that she would see a correlation in 
the amount of objects that may be on the lens uh, being a sort of proportionally inverse to the real estate value of, of the same place because uh, many objects would uh, would mean uh, maybe a, a, a Hispanic or Asian uh, family living living in the living in the in the house in opposition to the the proper white family and uh, and she would she would also talk about the how the how the work on 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 this loan and and also on the house would be uh, would be racialized in how you you have you know the the the, the white man on on Sunday afternoon doing doing his homework uh, uh, and uh, repairing a few things and and sort of incre increasing the real the estate value, value whereas yeah. whereas all, all other communities uh, modification of the space would be perceived as a as a real estate decrease. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting. Uh, and in this gender construction of those spaces, as I, as we said, the man is in the front part and the woman again she's in the private part. So mm -hmm. she's. Uh, uh, I think it's also a caricature that we're doing by saying this. You know, I think that today the woman is also in the front part, but it's um, it's part of representations and symbolic and cultural uh, issues. This is why it's important to talk about it. I don't think that today the woman uh, is forbidden of or she has ever been forbidden of going in the front space. No, it's not that. But it's part of a cultural and symbolic element that we have to, to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and so still still around this uh, element of the loan, um, you're, you're using recurrently um, uh, examples of projects by an architect that I have to admit I, I knew from a long time ago and I never really perceived the, the sort of uh, uh, theoretical work behind these projects and, and maybe that's where you find your discrepancy uh, but um, uh, Joel Sanders uh, who, who was uh, was quite young actually probably in the late, uh, late 80s beginning, beginning of 90s but who maybe was as as you explained the, the first one of the first uh, uh, North American architects to to engage this notion of gender not not anymore so much as a dichotomy between the male and female but maybe more as a sort of a fem fem femininity and masculinity and uh, and and with uh, with a, a sort of a, a agenda uh, to to no longer think uh, uh, the architect as a, I mean, Howard Rourke from the Fontainehead, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. A sort of macho, mm -hmm. uh, uh, megalomaniac uh, male architect, but maybe a more uh, a more uh, queer uh, um, embodiment of the architect. And so he he's been doing projects typically about about the loan. So could you could you maybe tell us about that? Yes, uh, Joel Sanders was someone very interesting to meet. So I had a long interview with him. Um, what we have to understand is that this reflection on uh, gender issues and architecture all uh, for Joel Sanders happened in at the end of the 80s where he was very um, engaged in ACT UP now in New York with all the, um, the question of what was going on regarding AIDS and homosexuality. So he was a militant in this uh, milieu. And what is interesting is that 
his political engagement had an impact on his way of thinking architecture. So uh, he re- il revendique, he, uh, claims. he claims his homosexuality and he thinks that uh, it, ha- it has something to do also in his uh, perception of the space. So, uh, and what is interesting also in his approach, it's at the same time, it's uh, regarding architecture, the, defini- the definition of the discipline, what is architecture, what are the limits of uh, the role of an architect, and also the space itself, especially the suburban house. So he worked a lot, uh, he published a book that is called Stud, and he worked a lot with, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Diana Foss, with, which is a person, uh, a scholar who works on uh, gender and queer issues. So he had uh, many conversations, and I think they have a common article in, in this book that he published so he published this book. He did many. He participated in many exhibitions. One of them uh, being House Rules, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And he had a role in uh, in the definition of the discipline and this um, dichotomy between what is an architect and what is an interior architect or mm-hmm. interior designer, where he says we we have to stop playing this game of, okay, if I put a curtain, then I'm an, an, a designer and it's something less less valued and less, um, especially when you do an, an architectural school and we, we teach you exactly what you were saying on Howard uh, uh, representations of the architect. So he played a lot on the... I, he has this project that is called the Bachelor... It's a bachelor house for uh, for a man... And when you when you look at the plans, they are quite complicated. But when you look at the drawings, you start understanding that what he was playing on was the dichotomy between private and public. This is what we were saying just a few minutes ago about the suburban being the space of um, of this dichotomy. So he inverted all the spaces that are supposed to be public and um, and private, the loan being one of them. And uh, he works a lot on all the stereotypes on uh, of masculine masculinity. So he doesn't he goes from a point of view of masculinity rather than feminism, which is also a very uh, new topic in architecture. So the body is very important. Uh, hedonism and luxury are also very important in uh, in his work because you can see that. Uh, the man is not only um, represented in an introverted space, but on the opposite, uh, his dressing room and his bathroom are all glassed, open to the public. So, yeah, he's really working on those uh, on those issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's this, there's this apartment where the, the showers are kind of translucent glass right exactly. to the kitchen, right? Yeah. Um, this is another project. He has two projects. They have some similar points, and uh, but the one you're talking about is the one that were that was shown in House Rules, and the plans are really really complicated to yeah. understand. He doesn't give us all the keys to also understand the plans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, right uh, a few minutes ago, you were you were evoking the another uh, architectural element uh, that that very much uh, engage with those questions, which was uh, the curtains and this text that Joel Sanders wrote uh, called Curtains War. And 
um, and maybe we can stop a little bit longer on it in, in how it, what it was trying to say and how the, the curtain was typically for the, for the gay decorator and whereas the serious architecture was for the, 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 the macho architect. Uh, and um, could, could, we, could we maybe continue speak, to speak a little bit vis-à-vis uh, -vis this, uh, this opposition? Uh, yes, we can take it from this point of view, from what Joel Sanders uh, said, but we can also open it to, uh, to the idea of uh, the different practices of architecture. Because at the, in those same years, what was happening is that uh, many scholars were also trying to see what are the architectural practices. Because, for example, many women architects were, all, were very often... Um, looked at for working on kitchen, on housing, but never on big programs like a museum or a church or whatever uh, was it. So yes, Sanders' ideas about the curtain is very amusing way of approaching the subject, which is also full of stereotypes. But at the same time, we can look at, uh, for example, Anne-Marie Adams and Pita Tank at McGill University who did this... Uh, this book about trying to see um, what what were the practices of women, and we, when I say women, I'm talking about in a way of minorities. We can also consider homosexuality, for example. So, looking at when pe when people study architecture and they don't do architecture, I mean they don't work in an office. What do they do? Very often they do decoration or design. Very often they will. Uh, Uh, be curators of exhibitions in the editing field, etc. So what Sanders does in this article is very interesting because he's opening the idea of saying, okay, today we don't have, it's not because we are architects that we have to build how, this is my way of interpreting. Mm -hmm. But what are the other practices of architecture and why are we putting uh, here the hierarchy? Uh, I cannot say the word in English. <laughs> Uh, in in the practices of architecture. And this goes back to the formation, to the pedagogy and the way we teach architecture to our students. When we teach architecture, we always teach them to do, to do a project. But we never... In, a, in an architectural school, there are no, no projects being uh, doing a book. Or it may be a research in a research course, but the project is also always a program that will have users, buildings, etc. So today I think we have to have this real reflection on what can architecture be other than building. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I know that we don't build at, at school, but uh, faire semblant de... To pretend. To pretend. Mm. Um, well, and it seems like what, what uh, Joel Sanders is also... Uh, touching upon in, in his text is the question of ornament in general. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in the last conversation with uh, Fabiola Lopez-Duran, uh, we talked about how uh, ornament had, had been banned from modernism. And obviously we, we all have in mind the Adolf Loos quote of like, ornament is a crime. And uh, something I did not know, but that I saw through uh, Fabiola's uh, text is also that the, the, the iconography that was going with this quote is, uh, uh, I'm not sure if it was directly uh, correlated uh, uh, in, the, in the text, but uh, very much in the spirit at least, um, 
uh, Adolf Loos had a had her, um, uh, a sort of etching of her of an indigenous person with with ornament on on his face, and presenting that as as I mean in an incredibly racist way as as being a crime, and uh, and as being precisely what architecture should not be doing, and so. On the other hand, I can see how ornament is coming back right now through uh, through um, various techniques of computations and everything, and I'm not I'm not fully satisfied in the way it's being engaged uh, precisely in an anti-modernist way and uh, and in a sort of queering of architecture, if we if we may even say. I don't think that's really the case, but could could we maybe talk a little bit about ornament as being also a gendered a gendered uh, uh, and and as we see a racialized uh, uh, element yeah. yes uh, well again ornamentation was always what is funny with this idea is that ornamentation was was a gendered issue that's for sure women were in charge of choosing the colors the curtains and uh, the ornaments in their house But if you look at any Salon des Arts Décoratifs, any uh, uh, big names of decorators, they were all men. So again, you have, you have a very interesting issue here because in the house, it would be the woman who will be char charge of this. But as soon as it becomes a profession, it's the man who takes in, have the, have the big names and the recognition Uh, of these issues. I'm talking here at of the end of the 19th century, for example. Uh, nowadays, I think that the this idea of ornamentation is being experimental for people who want to work with parametric issues, etc. But I don't think it has the same political and social um, meaning. Mm, I that, don't think so either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just, uh, okay, uh, we are discovering this new program and uh, we have this new material. Let's try and see how uh, we can work out a facade that will uh, be ornamented but at the same time I don't know will bring less or more light into the house mm -hmm. or etc. An ornament is also what capitalism lets you do to add value to a non to what capitalism would yes. consider a non-essential element of architecture. Yes and also I think it's a way of um, you know people are really tired of modern architecture and when they see a blank white surface They are afraid of it because of all the representations that we have of les grands ensembles, of mm -hmm. the architecture, of the after-war architecture. So also, I think it's a way of uh, trying to democratize architecture regarding the the big public. Mm -hmm. That is, oh, the you know, architects will think, oh, maybe they will, they will have more. Um, I don't know how to say this. They will uh, appreciate a bit more our yeah. architecture. But it's only a surface. It's not uh, rethinking the space or trying to see how we can uh, transgress norms or uh, rethink the space or the, you know, it's mm -hmm. only uh, a facade. Mm. Um, maybe one last element that I'd like to talk about specifically about the, the suburban house and that Beatrice Colomina engages as well in her texts is uh, the window and through the window there is a problem of visibility as well could you could you tell us a little bit what her work uh, how her work engaged uh, uh, about visibility engaged uh, gender i i i don't want to talk on her 
at her place. So sure. <laughs> I think that it's better to read her to understand <laughs> this. Uh, because I'm not also always very convinced by what she says, or I'm not sure I understand everything that she says, uh, especially in this work she does with uh, Los and uh, Le, Cor Le Corbusier, I think, mm. yes. I also forgot a bit of this uh, chapter. Um, I think the question of uh, visibility or not, it's per, defi per definition a question, one of the first questions, Um, done in all works on feminism and gender, whether it is the visibility in the public space, in the social realm, the, pub the political, etc. So it, for sure in architecture it's interesting to, uh, to be argued and I think that uh, all those um, uh, apparat spatial apparatus, uh, the dispositive spatial that... Um, that were uh, redefined by feminists in order to open the house to allow like the kitchen opening to the to the living room etc were steps that would allow the woman to uh, to be visible in the house and to be able of at the same time doing her job uh, entre guillemets and uh, having a social uh, life with her family for mm -hmm. example So uh, visibility, I think, whether it's the window or not, I mean, the window is the... Um, it is one of the elements that we could consider to talk about it, but uh, I think that it's much more than, than the window, per se, as an element of architecture. I think what is even more import important is the articulation between the spaces, whether it's the, the street the house, what's happening in between, all those in-betweens, I believe, are the spaces of potentialities of working on what can or should or be visible or not mm -hmm. in order to think uh, a space that will, uh, that will allow women or not, you know, it's not, uh, it can be also men or children, mm -hmm. for example. But that will allow us to rethink the structure of our houses, uh, knowing that the suburban house is, I don't know, 95% of the, of the market of, uh, how, of American housing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe in this spirit, I, I, I would like to re-insist on looking at Olivia Ann's work and that she's been doing on this particular topic and, and how uh, something like the relationship between a mother and her daughter, for example, would be impacted by very little uh, spatial agency within the suburban house. So it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, fascinating work that she's been doing uh, uh, for her thesis. Um, maybe as a, as a last part of conversation, I'd like to, to go um, uh, to the question of... of uh, Both of identity and what what you what you call uh, strategic essentialism, as as a sort of uh, embracing of the essentialism that that no, that the norm has been has been placing on on uh, on bodies, and how um, how uh, I mean to to put it simply how how the norm is uh, is. Uh, Is um, calling upon bodies and calling them uh, calling calling them black or, or or and and how 
how then the political reaction to that is to embrace uh, embrace this, those uh, normative characteristic and form an identity based on them. And I, I'd like to hear you about that. But maybe as a as a you know in order to stay focused on the on design specifically, uh, I I'd like maybe to to invoke a text that you've been sending me uh, about uh, that, that, that talks about gender and design and how uh, the, the drawings in the graphic, graphic standards, uh, the, so the, the books that has like all the sort of dimensioning, t- t- standardized dimensioning of, of pretty much every elemental ar- uh, piece of architecture and how, and obviously this, this book also involved the uh, uh, dimensioning of human bodies and so this um, the person who wrote this this article, Lance Hosey, is um, is is arguing is looking at the different versions of graphic standards and how how it's been evolving to maybe be a little bit more inclusive. Let's say uh, that's not the word he used, but I, I guess that's the spirit. And and how uh, in the if I remember correctly in the nineteen sixty in the nineteen sixties the graphic standards. Uh, representation of a woman would would be just the, the foot with the, wearing the heel. It's I mean there's this really quite incredible drawing where you see a, a sort of standardized man, and right next to it you just you just see a foot. Um, but what I find problematic in this text is is uh, the way that the author seems to claim for more inclusiveness and more standardized bodies and uh, they should not just be a man they should be a woman and they should not just be a white man they should be also a black man and, a, and an asian man and and actually he, he shows how someone like henry dreyfus has been thinking about that but it, it does not it does not get away from from the logic that that form normative uh uh the normative violence i would say so uh that's a very very long question to 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 uh, much longer than we probably need, but could you, could you maybe tell us this, this sort of uh, problematic uh, aspect of the political response to normativity? Yes, sure. Um, I think this goes back to a fundamental question, being one uh, that would uh, allow us to, to think about how we can represent or consider rather than represent a society. For example, if I just compare Europe, France to the States, in, in France we, the society is defined politically and socially by a Republican society that is supposed to be equal for all people. Whether in the States the society is represented with its plurality, that is to say uh, minorities and what we consider a majority being WASP. Uh, the question of minority and majority not being that of numbers, but of representation. Uh, so when it's really a very complicated question because at the same time we need common bases to define our society, but at the same time we don't want to create norms or we 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 try to go beyond the idea of how can we think today without creating norms. So I don't think that the idea of including uh, different different races or different genders, etc., is the solution. I think that uh, 
it will lead also to another critic as as we did the critic of the modern movement and as postmodern position that wants to take into consideration everyone uh, with its with his or her own story etc is not is not convincing us neither so uh, so yes so i think that today we are maybe architecture is falling in a very pragmatic and boring response to a to a to a program or a command because it didn't find yet a position a, a political position to consider but it's i think it's more than this it's that in architecture the user is not yet at the at the center of the 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 thinking of the people because it's exactly what you were saying the user is a drawing of a person mm-hmm. we don't care about this drawing it's not this that should allow us to think the project i don't think i don't think it's the dimensions or the you know the scale i think that today we have to consider the the project regarding social not social behaviors huh? but social interaction uh users people I and mean people not drawing of people and i think that by the by the time we can really build a reflection about who are the people like who is going to live there and how and uh, we will go beyond the representation of people uh, being that of a woman or a guy or mm-hmm. Well, that seems a very uh, a very good concluding manifesto for <laughs> for architects. So, thank you so much, Stephanie, for taking Thanks. the time to talk to me today. And uh, and uh, I think, uh, as I said earlier, uh, it's always great to continue series like that. So, thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs>